we're doing today and over the next six weeks is we're going to be doing this study called Logos Foundations of Effective Bible Study. And that word Logos, not Logos, but Logos is a Greek word. And it's just the Greek word for word. And <clears throat> so when we talk about the Bible being the Word of God, or when we see in the Gospel of John, Jesus is called the Word. Uh, that's the word that is being used in the original text. So the Bible was originally not written in English, as I'm sure you're aware. The Bible was originally uh, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. So in particular, come on in, guys. We've got some handouts here that are floating around if you all want to grab one. Uh, so when we talk about the Old Testament, we're primarily talking about uh, a text that was written in the Hebrew language. When we talk about the New Testament, we're primarily talking about a text that was written in Greek. And what is our purpose? The reason why we're doing this, and this is something we've been talking about doing for a long time, uh, purpose is that by studying God's Word, that we would become more fully formed disciples of Jesus who not only know the truths of Scripture, but we're also able to live and declare those truths as we seek to make disciples. So, in saying that, what we're trying to say is that the intention here is not just that we would come away knowing more about the Bible or knowing more about doctrine or theology, but that we would come away from this with some practical application that then filters into our everyday lives, that we would be a people who are kind of formed by the Word of God and that that translates into the way that we live our lives every day. And so what we're going to be asking uh, in this class is, uh, what is the Bible? And what do, I, what do I do with the Bible? Where did we, how did we get it? Where did it come from? Um, how did it come into being? And uh, on another level, like, why should I believe it? Like, why is it something that some people think is an authoritative book, that it holds some level of authority over us? Why do we think that? And how can I have some level of confidence in that being true? And so that's what we're going to attempt to tackle throughout this. So let's start with just some quick bullet points. What is the Bible? What is the Bible not? Uh, we're going to start with uh, what is the Bible? The Bible is primarily about the story of God, His revelation of Himself to, to humanity, and His grand plan of restoration. So it's kind of hard to sum up the Bible. The Bible is made up of 66 individual books. And so it's kind of hard to say, here's what the Bible is. But if we were to attempt it, this is kind of a pretty good summation statement. Uh, it is about God. It is about creation and the way that He has revealed Himself to His creation. And then it is also about the fact that His creation has sinned and fallen short of His glory, and instead of just scrapping it, or kind of shaking the, uh, the chessboard or the etch-a-sketch, as it were, He has actually instituted this grand plan of restoration that is fully realized in Jesus. And so the Bible gives us the full story arc there of what has happened and what will happen. What the Bible is not. Um, the Bible is not primarily a rule book. Uh, there are some rules in the Bible, especially when we look at the Old Testament. Uh, we do see that God gives uh, a law, a, a kind of a codified system of laws to the people of Israel. And, and so we do see some of those things in the Bible, but the Bible is not primarily a rule book. It's not something that you can just turn to every page and kind of find exactly what God uh, wants you to do or not do in any particular given situation. Uh, the Bible is not necessarily God's instruction manual for life. I taught this class once at another church, and there was somebody in the class that genuinely thought the Bible was an acrostic. The word Bible was an acrostic for basic instructions before leaving earth. Like they had been told that at some VBS along the way, I think, and it had, the wires had gotten crossed. I thought they were kidding, and I think I offended them. Um, that's not what Bible stands for. Um, and that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is not primarily just this handbook for how to live, um, which is the way that some people think about it. And some of that comes from kind of the way that the Bible has been devotionalized in our American culture today. And so a lot of people don't read the Bible. They read devotional books about the Bible, 
which ultimately what that does is it kind of sound bites the Bible. It, it ta- and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can leave you with an inadequate or an incomplete view of what actually is happening in a particular text. And so um, we can't just go, hey, I want to learn more about uh, being a nice person, or I want to learn more about being kind or loving, and, and, or I wanna, I'm going through a tough period, and so I, I just need to find the area of the Bible that speaks to that particular thing. And so it, it's not just this thing that is meant to just help us through every situation in life or comfort us um, or bring us some kind of clarity in everything. That's not the, the primary intention of Scripture. Again, this is about the story of God, His revelation of Himself to humanity, and His grand plan of restoration. It's not just about um, helping us through everyday situations, even though we do glean some of that from Scripture. So does that make sense? Um, it's not a book that was once lost and then rediscovered. There, there's never been any point in history where what we know as the Bible has, uh, where it's been lost, where, where we've gone through a season of history where um, we don't know where it is or what it is, and then some archaeologist or something then dug it up and discovered it. That's never happened. Uh, the Bible has been in existence, and what we know as the Bible has been in existence, um, since the time that it originated. And so, just so we're clear, what you have, like, so this, this like, pleather-bound book is, is a relatively new thing in the scheme of human history. For most of human history, people have encountered the books of the Bible as individual books. So not as this compiled, neatly put together thing. This is something that really comes after the 15th century when the printing press was invented, and all of the books of the Bible could be compiled into one singular source. Before that time, people were primarily encountering these books as individual scrolls. And so uh, if you read the book of Acts, you see in the book of Acts, uh, Philip uh, meets an Ethiopian eunuch. And, and what that story tells us is that this Ethiopian guy is uh, he's riding on a chariot, I believe, and he is reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Philip walks up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? Well, he's not reading this. He's reading one book out of the 66 books that is included in this. And so we'll get to, in just a few minutes, kind of how, how that all came to be. But it was never lost and then rediscovered. The Bible's not written in code. Um, uh, back at the end of the 1990s, when like the millennium was coming and like Y2K and, and all of that kind of anxiety about what's going to happen and, and is, God, is Jesus coming back and all of those kinds of things, there were these Bible code books that came out. Do you guys remember this? Some of you may not be old enough to remember this, but there were these Bible code books that came out. And, and this is not a new phenomenon. This has happened throughout the course of Christian history um, where, where people... Uh, try to say that, hey, listen, I've really discovered the secret to how to read the Bible. And what this person did was they took some of the original text, and if you can imagine just pages of the original text in the original language, and then circling individual letters on different lines, and then drawing a line between all those things and saying, look, if you circle all of these letters and then you draw a line between them, here's the secret hidden message that it gives us, okay? That's not what the Bible is. That's not how we read the Bible. Uh, That's how you make the Bible say what you want it to say. Um, when we start trying to read it as if there is some kind of coded, hidden meaning there, then not only are we uh, detracting from what Scripture says about itself, but we're just doing something that just doesn't make any sense. That's not how we would read any other kind of book. And it's just a way for people to make money at the end of the day and kind of advance their own agenda. And, and we see a lot of that in different ways throughout Christian history. It's not just simply a good or moral book. Uh, in fact, most of the characters that you encounter in Scripture are like really, really immoral people. Um, so the Bible is not just a collection of stories about people whose lives should be emulated. Um, there are some people whose lives should be emulated, and then there are some just terrible, horrible people that we meet in Scripture, and we learn about who God is through their lives. We learn about what God wants and how God responds to us and what God desires from us um, through many of their lives. The Bible is also not primarily a book of religion. And I love this quote, which kind of explains what I mean by this. This comes to us from a guy named Leslie Newbigin, 
who was a uh, British missionary to India. And this is an exchange that he had with an Indian holy man named Badranath. And Badranath said to him, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in, in India. We don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. And so if you go to India, if you go to the Middle East, if you go to Tibet, you go to these places that have prominent religions, what you find is there are many, 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 many religious texts. And, and they are essentially, in a sense, liturgical texts. They are prescriptive for how we worship God and how we live lives of worship to God or whatever God it is that you're worshiping. That's, that's not really what the Bible is in its entirety. So, so much of the Bible is a work of history. Much of the Bible is telling us the history of the Jewish people in relationship to God and what is to come for the Jewish people and, and ultimately the rest of the world. And so there is more here than just simply a, a religious liturgical code um, or a set of rules that we should follow if we are going to be people who call ourselves followers of God. Now, we learn about some of those things in the Bible, but that's not, uh, that would be kind of diminishing what the Bible is to say that it is simply, the intention is simply to institute some kind of a religious order and structure. So, that, does that make sense? Are there any questions before I move on? Uh, so just a few bullet points about what the Bible is. We gave kind of a definition. We said it's the story of God, his revelation of himself to humanity, and then his grand plan of restoration. Um, but just a few more things. The Bible is a book that demands faith. So we are not saved by having faith in the Bible, per se. Uh, we are not saved by uh, having faith in this artifact, in this book. We are saved... Scripture says, through faith in Jesus alone. But how do you know about Jesus? How do you know that you are saved through faith in Jesus alone? Well, we know that because of the Bible. We know that because that's what the Bible tells us. And what we believe about this book is that it is a divine book. It is God's Word to us. And so we are not saved through faith in the Bible. We're saved through faith in Jesus. But if I have faith in Jesus, then ultimately I've gained a knowledge of the Word of God and the story of the Gospel and what Jesus has done for us through the Bible. And ultimately what the Bible says is that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of God. And so this is a book that demands our faith as well. Not faith in the sense that it is salvific, but ultimately, hopefully you see all of those things are kind of interconnected. If we have faith in Jesus, then we know about that because we've encountered it in Scripture or someone has told us what Scripture says. And so what we will find as we go through this is that there are parts of this that are obscure. There are parts of this that are strange. There are parts of this that may not make any sense to us at the time. And yet we believe it is true. We believe it is true, and we believe it's the Word of God. We'll talk more about that. Uh, as I said, we believe it's a divine book. We believe it's God's Word to humanity. Yet at the same time, it is also a human book. Um, so this is not a book that fell from the heavens. Uh, in the uh, Mormon church, you know, you may know some of the story there. The, their founder, Joseph Smith, says that he found these golden tablets that supposedly, you know, kind of miraculously fell from heaven. That's not what the Bible is. Um, the Bible is a book that was written by human beings. And, and the very first time the Bible actually kind of talks about the writing of the Bible is in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, where Moses says to somebody, 
hey, we need to write some of this stuff down because we need to kind of keep an account or a record of what God is doing. So the very first time the Bible even says anything about its own writing, it's a human saying, hey, we need to write some of this stuff down. So there are at least 40 human authors who wrote the individual 66 books of the Bible. And yet we also believe it is God's Word. We believe that ultimately God is the ultimate author, but yet somehow these human beings have written God's Word to us. So we'll talk more about that and maybe how that works in just a minute. The Bible is a book that is for you, but it's not about you. You cannot read yourself into the pages of Scripture. Um, It is meant for your benefit. Uh, It is meant for your flourishing. It is meant for you to know God and to trust Him and to see His beauty and to recognize how incredible the gospel is. Um, But it is not about you. It is about Him. Um, It's also not about America, by the way. Um, We can't read America into the pages of the Bible either. Um, and I think, I think we hear people doing that a lot. Um, but this is not, if anything, this is a book about Israel. And uh, in the New Testament, it's about the first century kind of milieu of Rome and Israel and Greece and everything that's happening there. Um, but it is most certainly not about America. We believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible, and in a moment we'll dig in a little bit more into what those words mean, but but just very quickly, we believe the Bible is without error, that it is exactly as God would have it be, and that any perceived errors to you, if you read it and go, man, this doesn't seem right, that whatever is included in the pages of Scripture is true, and it is what God would have there, even if you read it and say, well, that seems weird to me. Um, Now, one caveat here is that when we say the Bible is inerrant and infallible, which is the historic Orthodox Christian belief, what we're saying is the original manuscripts of Scripture, the original autographs of Scripture are inerrant and infallible. So literally the pages that were written by the authors of Scripture, those artifacts, which are all lost, they're all gone now, I mean, 2,000 plus years later, um, that those original manuscripts are inerrant and infallible. So it's, it's quite possible that something messed up on the printer in your copy and you get to page 1936 and it says Jebus, right? Something, something went wrong. So, so what we're saying is not that there is absolutely no, no error, no human error in this book that you are holding, Um, or that you're not going to turn to a page and and something messed up on the printer. What we are saying is that God inspired the original authors of Scripture and what they were writing, and that that their original manuscripts are inerrant and infallible. And what we'll see in a little bit is that we have a very strong case that what we have today in this form is almost verbatim to what those original authors wrote. And so we have very little room for doubt that this book is in some way dramatically different from the original autographs of Scripture. And we'll look at that in a second. Uh, The Bible is strange, disturbing, and confusing. If you say that it isn't, then you haven't read the Bible. Um, Or or you're trying to turn it into some kind of, uh, you know, lovey-dovey, Jesus sprinkling pixie dust on everybody uh, kind of book. Um, There are really bizarre sections of Scripture. There are prophetic sections of Scripture that are highly metaphorical, highly symbolic in nature. And then there are other parts of Scripture that are very literal, uh, other parts of Scripture that are historical, and they're meant to be kind of a chronological account of exactly what happened. And so part of reading the Bible, as we'll see, is it's incredibly important to know context, and it's incredibly important to know genre as well, because there are a variety of literary genres that are included in Scripture. 
Uh, and finally, the, the Bible is our source of knowledge about Jesus and his gospel. And this is, I, I would say, the most important thing for us. Uh, God's story, his revelation of himself to humanity, and his grand plan of restoration. Uh, our hope is found in God's grand plan of restoration, that God has sent his son Jesus uh, to die for us so that we might be saved from our sins and become a part of his family. And then ultimately, Scripture teaches us that Jesus will return, he will restore all things, he will set all things back to their original intent, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be kind of this joined state of heaven and earth uh, when he restores all things. And so this is his grand plan of setting things right. All right, so let's jump in to biblical inspiration. Before I do that, any quick questions, any thoughts, comments? I'm going to shut this door real quick. Does that all make sense, guys? All right. So when we talk about inspiration... um, I don't know that we're necessarily talking about inspiration and maybe the way that we use that word today. Um, I can go to a movie and leave feeling inspired. Um, I can listen to a song and go, man, that song's really inspirational to me. That's not necessarily what we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired. Um, So that word comes from the Latin word, uh, which means to breathe or to breathe in. And a couple of key texts where Scripture kind of talks about itself is 1, 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here's, here's something that Scripture says of itself. Like Here's part of the purpose of what this is for you. Again, it is for you, but not about you. And what this is telling us is it comes from God, And here are all of the things that it does as you engage it. Uh, Also, 2 Peter 1, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so when we use that word inspiration, uh, this is what we're talking about, this carried alongness of the original biblical authors, that somehow the Holy Spirit uh, carried them as they wrote the words of Scripture. Um, And so in this, we're kind of talking about like a doctrine of inspiration. And ultimately, in very simple terms, the doctrine of inspiration is that the Bible is not just the work of human creativity and effort. Um, It's not just the result of some people sitting down and writing some things. It is actually the result of God's divine illumination of the human authors. Um, That not only were they inspired in the sense of going, hey, I think I want to write something, but they were illuminated by God um, as they wrote. And so we believe God is the ultimate author of Scripture, but yet we believe the Bible was written by humans. And so as a result, the Bible is a paradox. Here is this work that was written by humans, and yet it is somehow free from error, which has never happened in the history of literature. There's no other human book written by humans that is completely 100% free from error. And I like this quote from John MacArthur in talking about the doctrine of inspiration. He says, ultimately, we're talking about God's disclosure of His truth. And he says, inspiration is the vehicle. Revelation is the content. Inspiration is how He did it. So when we talk about divine revelation, we're talking about the content of the Bible, the message, the truth that God revealed or disclosed. When we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the method that God used, how He breathed it out. So in Revelation, God makes Himself known. In inspiration, the Spirit of God takes the revelation, the content, and puts it through the mind of the human writers in the Old and New Testament, who write it down as it flows from God, the Holy Spirit, through their minds. Now, this is a a drawing by M.C. Escher, famous artist. He, He worked a lot with kind of optical illusions and... Um, this is actually a really great representation of, of kind of what we believe about the Bible. Um, it's kind of this question of, of which hand is drawing the other hand. 
And just picturing that in your mind, we're going to look at just two theories of inspiration. This is, this is just going, this is a theory of how God did this because there's no part of Scripture where the Bible says, well, let me, let me just lay out for you the way that God goes about doing this or the mechanics of how God does this. But, but an Orthodox Christian view on this is what's known as the plenary verbal theory. And so plenary means complete or absolute. Uh, verbal refers to the, the very words of Scripture. So the actual things that were written on the page. Um, so this is God in His sovereignty and providence directly inspired the very words of the original manuscripts. Although, and this is key, He did not change the author's intelligence or understanding while doing so. Meaning that God chose, inspired, and sovereignly guided the biblical authors who were equipped by Him to write the very words of Scripture. Um, so, ultimately what we're saying here is that somehow... God illuminated the human authors, but He did not take away their distinct voices or the influence of their individual cultures or the time period in which they lived or the genres in which they wrote. And so somehow we have this book that spans like 1,600 years and includes history and poetry and correspondence and prophecy, and, and all of these different things. And it was written by humans, illuminated by God. But what it was not was this second theory, which is known as the verbal dictation theory, or what I call the Holy Spirit trance theory. And this is actually, I think, what a lot of people think maybe about the Bible. Or maybe a lot of people have never thought about this stuff. But I think some people think that God kind of came upon the biblical authors through the Holy Spirit and their own personalities and uh, uniqueness went by the wayside and God kind of took over control and guided the pen as they wrote. Um, and so this is this theory, and this is a quote from C.H. Dodd, theologian. Uh, the human role was purely a mechanical one. Their individuality was bypassed while they wrote, and neither did their cultural background have any influence on what they wrote because these writers were under the control of God. And so hopefully you see the difference between these two things. With the first one, what we're saying is the human authors personalities and styles and genre and their individual voices, we still get those. Those come through the pages of Scripture, and yet we believe that the very words on the page were inspired and illuminated by God. And so God somehow, in His sovereignty and His providence, has created this work that, um, where the uniqueness of the authors remains and yet it is His Word. That is what we're talking about when we talk about the plenary verbal model and not this thing where the human authors are inconsequential and God was simply using them as a hand to guide a, a pen on a piece of parchment. Question? Yeah. It sounds like there's a foundation for uh, apologetics in there, but I don't know what the argument is. Why is that important? The, just the way that we view it? Well, there are uh, a myriad of other theories as well. And so, so if you study apologetics, this is one of the things that you might study. Um, and, and it's important because ultimately we're kind of asking, you know, how do we interpret Scripture when we read it? Um, there, there are some people who would say, well, ultimately, God didn't in, inspire. God is real, but God didn't inspire the writers of Scripture. These guys were just good guys who loved the Lord and just wrote poetry or kept an account of what happened, but it's not necessarily the Word of God. And so at the end of the day, the apogetical argument, especially with the plenary verbal theory, is, is this is where that doctrine of inerrancy ultimately comes from. So, so we believe the Bible is complete and perfect and as it should be, and it explains how we can... Uh, one, have continuity among all of these books, how we can have individual, very distinct voices and, and, and get the personalities and the cultures of the authors that are in there, 
and yet this is still the Word of God, and it is perfect and without blemish. So does that make sense? Yeah, now that I think about it, it helps with the Gospels, why one writer would say one thing versus another writer, because they're not void of their... Yeah, yeah. So, so when the when the gospels were compiled, the gospels were actually originally kind of compiled as one unit. Um, it was one of the first parts of the New Testament to be kind of compiled together and accepted by the church. And so that's why when you look in some Bibles, it'll say the gospel according to. Um, but all four books, they weren't called the gospels; they were called the gospel, meaning this is one account or this is one story, but there are four different accounts here of that. Um, so you get the distinct voices of the gospel writers, but it is all the same story of Jesus. And the same thing would be true for us. If, if we all witnessed a car wreck, for example, and we all have to give an account to the police of what we saw, we would all be talking about the same event, but inevitably we would all talk about that event in different ways there would be certain things that stuck out to us about what had happened that we would really want to emphasize, or depending on who we're talking to and what we know about the person we're talking to, there would be certain things that we would want to emphasize. And so one of the things we learn about the Gospels is that uh, the intended audience of the individual Gospels was different. So Matthew's Gospel, for example, was intended for a primarily Jewish audience. And so it, we see in some of the language that Matthew uses and the way that he writes that he's trying to write in a way where a Jewish audience will read this and go, oh, well, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the one that we've been looking for this whole time. Um, so any other questions, thoughts about that? So how did the Bible come to be? The very first list of uh, the 27 books of the New Testament comes in A.D. 367. comes from this guy named Athanasius, who was a very prominent early church father. And there is some, uh, some evidence that that same list of 27 books may have existed about a century earlier. Ultimately, when we ask, how did the Bible come to be? Really what we're asking is, how did the New Testament come to be? Because the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament uh, was something that Jesus taught. It was something that Jesus affirmed. It was something that was already a compiled and agreed upon Word of God by the Jewish people. And one of the things we have to remember is that Christianity is a thoroughly Jewish religion in terms of its origins and its roots. Christianity is an Eastern religion. Christianity is not an American religion. Jesus is the Messiah that is the fulfillment of Jewish history. So you go all the way back to Abraham. God tells Abraham, he makes this covenant with him, he promises him, you and your descendants will fill the earth and you will be a blessing to all nations. And then ultimately, hundreds of years later, Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant with Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to all nations. And so what we have to do as we read the Bible is, is and we, we don't know a lot about this, and it's very kind of un-American in, in the way that American Christianity does things, but we have to get back to some of the Jewish roots of Scripture in order to kind of fully understand some of what we find in this book because so much of it was written to a Jewish audience, and especially when we're talking about the Old Testament. Um, we are dealing with Jewish history. We're dealing with Jewish culture. Um, we are dealing with the story of the people of Israel, and these Jewish writers are writing to a Jewish audience. And, and then we read it today without any of that cultural insight um, or without an understanding of, of things that could have been said to a particular group of people that would have made sense within that particular cultural context. Um, and, and so we, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage there. And so I think in order to kind of fully read the Bible and to dig in and to study Scripture, um, some of us need to do just a little bit of side work in understanding Judaism and the way that that played out in the time of Isaiah. Or what did that look like during the reign of King David? Um, and so when we ask, how did the Bible come to be? Well, the Old Testament canon, 
the Old Testament compilation was already something that existed. It was already something that was agreed upon, and it was something that Jesus taught. Um, so then the question becomes, how, how does the New Testament come to be? And you see it's like 300-something years after the death of Jesus that we actually have a list that says these are the books that the church considers to be the inspired Word of God. And I used that word canon just a second ago, and canon is just a compilation of sacred books that is considered to be genuine. So we talk about the canon of Scripture, or we say that a certain book is canonical, meaning it should be included in the list of sacred books considered genuine. Uh, why did the church compile these books? And again, these are individual works. Why did the church compile them? Well, one, um, an established canon, an established list was a counter to claims that other scriptures existed. And so one of the things we see, especially in the first uh, four centuries or so, is there is this glut of non-biblical works about Jesus or about other biblical characters that come out. So, uh, church history, uh, in the 200s, there is this period of mass persecution where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians were killed by the Romans. In the early 300s, that changes dramatically because the Roman Emperor Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. So this is, this is like an overnight almost sea change. Christians go from being underground, uh, from being martyred, to suddenly occupying the grand cathedrals in the middle of town. Uh, and Roman uh, pantheism, uh, they go from worshiping all these other gods to now they're worshiping the god of the Jews. So, so this is a massive sea change. Uh, they go to, to worshiping Jesus rather than this whole just cacophony of other, of other gods. And so one of the things that happens as a result of that is, one, persecution like completely ends in the known world for that time period. Um, and also a bunch of enterprising people suddenly are discovering all of these other biblical, quotey fingers, biblical texts. And this especially happens in the 300s, 400s, 500s, in that kind of time period, that suddenly the gospel of Judas is being discovered. And this was lost. We didn't know this existed. And, and now here it is. It's for sale if you want to buy it. Um, and what, what we see throughout history is that this kind of happens over and over again throughout history. And people kind of rediscover these uh, supposedly rediscovered works of the Bible. Um, and you can go to Barnes & Noble today and you can find the gospel maybe of Mary Magdalene. You can find the gospel of, of these other people who the Bible says were witnesses to Jesus. But these were not lost works. These were works that were written uh, contemporaneously with Constantine making Christianity the official religion of Rome, and they were meant to simply be a capitalistic way to, uh, you know, just kind of cash in on Jesus mania, in a sense. And, and so this is really no different than a lot of stuff we see today. Uh, a few years ago, um, there was a book that became really popular about uh, a little boy that had supposedly died and went to heaven and came back, okay? Um, and so what happens? There are suddenly 40 books about people who died and went to heaven and came back. Well, these are all being written contemporaneously now, and we're not going to get into, like, is that true or any of that stuff, but, but this is the same thing happening years and years ago. It's people going, oh, here's this thing that people are interested in, and here's a way that I can make money. And so, boom, here are these books. The difference is, when we talk about the 27 books of the New Testament, they all have apostolic roots. They all are directly connected to the original apostles or disciples who followed Jesus, who were a witness to the ministry of Jesus. And so when we get to this list that Athanasius had, or that was maybe in existence before that, um, this established canon counters the claims that your book of Judas or whoever else, that that's actually a biblical thing, that that's actually also the Word of God. Secondly, an established canon 
countered mutilated books of Scripture that were being circulated. Um, so one of the first heretics in the church, one of the first people to uh, be spreading uh, a completely untrue theology of God um, was this guy named Marcion. And uh, Marcion took the books of Scripture, both in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the books of the New Testament, and he basically like scrubbed out any references to Judaism in them. And so it was almost like this kind of anti-Semitic Christianity that he was espousing. And so by having an established canon, you're saying, no, 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 when we talk about the book of Mark, the book of Mark is this chapter and this chapter and this chapter and this chapter and this chapter, and here's what it says. And, and you're saying you have the book of Mark, but it doesn't include all of these things. And so by having an established canon that was recognized by the church, that's a counter to anybody else that goes, no, 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 you don't have the right book of Mark. Here's the right book of Mark. And then finally, that uh, just collection was greatly needed during the era of persecution. As Christians are underground, as you can imagine, um, and that we, you know, we see this um, throughout history when Christians are persecuted, that the Bible is a refuge and it is a source of hope and it is a place where we can kind of uh, you know, just be reminded of who God is and how God loves us and what God wants for us and what He has done for us. And so... Let's talk reliability. Uh, again, these words, inerrancy means without fault or error. Um, so the Bible is inerrant. Um, but then also infallibility is, is similar, but, but a little bit different. Fallibility relates to uh, the capability of the Bible for error. And if it is infallible, that it is, then it is incapable of error. So not only does it not have any errors, but it is incapable of airing in the original manuscripts. And this is where we'll kind of wrap up three tests of reliability. Um, and this is what historians use for any ancient texts. Uh, quantity of manuscripts. How many are there? Um, so when we talk about the Bible, what we've said is that those original manuscripts of Scripture uh, are no longer in existence. We're talking about a book that was written 2,000 plus years ago. Um, it, it's inconceivable that we would have original manuscripts. Um, and that's true of any other book that is the age of the Bible or older. Um, nobody has an original manuscript of Plato or Socrates, for example. Those don't exist. Why? Because they were written on like animal skins and they've deteriorated and they've just turned to dust over time. Um, and so, when we talk about, is the Bible reliable? Can I trust the Bible? How do I know that what's on the page of my Bible was what was on the page of the original biblical author? These are the tests that we employ in the same way that you would uh, employ these same tests for any other historical uh, ancient author. Um, so, we're talking about copies that are out there. Copies of the original manuscripts of Scripture. How many of them are there? Um, and so when we talk about the New Testament, or actually I'll go through and we'll talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, when we talk about the Old Testament, um, there are really not a ton of uh, manuscripts that are out there, and it's just because it's so old. Um, also, the people of Israel were kind of a nomadic people throughout their history. They move around some. Uh, there's the period of exile where they're in Babylon. Uh, the uh, Israelite scribes were so serious about the Word of God that if there was any kind of blemish, if anything became damaged, if there was anything wrong with a particular scroll, it would be destroyed or burned or done away with very quickly. And so there are not a ton of uh, old, old manuscripts that are out there, um, but they do exist uh, today, even though not in the same way that the New Testament um, exists. So when it comes to quantity of manuscripts for the New Testament, there are over 5,700 uh, manuscripts that are, that are old. Uh, 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament, um, ranging from the early 2nd century um, to the 16th century as well. And so um, when you start adding in other old 
copies. So when we talk about the New Testament, it's written in Greek. But when we start talking about Latin copies um, or Coptic copies, um, other languages, Arabic copies as well, um, from similar time periods, there are like 25,000 early manuscripts of the New Testament. And, and so just as you can imagine, like if you, if you have even five manuscripts, you're able to lay them all out and go, do these things say the same thing, right? Um, even if you're not talking about the Bible, you can just lay something out. Even if this one was written 100 years ago, this one was written 500 years from now. Like you can lay them all out and go, uh, is this word, this word, this word, are they the same? And so that's what biblical scholars do. It's called textual criticism. It's, it's looking at these early copies of Scripture and going, do these things all say the same thing? Or if there are discrepancies, and there are discrepancies, what is the discrepancy? You know, is it, and, and, and like less than 1% of the discrepancies in the manuscripts of Scripture have anything to do with the thought or the idea of a particular passage. And so it'd be the difference between me saying, I drove my car this morning, and me saying, I operated a vehicle this morning. Now, both of those things mean the same thing, but I've said them in different ways, right? And so if you go back to early manuscripts and even early textual criticism of the Bible, you'll see that the early biblical translators are noting all of those things. They're pouring over the existing manuscripts, and they're noting all of the little differences in wording and, and making notes of all of those things. So even in your Bible today, and I'd recommend if you don't have a great study Bible, get you a great study Bible. This is the ESV study Bible. Um, pick up one of these, and, and what you'll find are footnotes, which not only explain, here's what this means, we think, but there are also a bunch of little notations within the text, which tells you that this uh, kind of hyperlinks to this other text over here, and here's maybe what we think from the original language that the intention was here, and, and there are a couple of different manuscripts, and one manuscript says this and one says this. A good study Bible will tell you all of those things, and as you pour over them, you go, oh, well, this is not, these aren't big differences that we're talking about here. These are small discrepancies that would occur if a human being is copying a text, no matter how diligently. So quantity of manuscripts. With the Old Testament, they are in existence. We don't have a ton of them. With the New Testament, they are in existence, um, and we have a ton of them. And we'll look at a chart in just a minute that will give us a little bit more insight into that. Uh, quality of manuscripts, um, and we've got to be done. Quality of manuscripts, uh, what kind of condition are they in? Um, with the Old Testament manuscripts, we owe a lot to this group of people called the Masoretes who were scribes. They copied the text of the Hebrew Bible um, between like the 5th and 9th centuries A.D. And so a lot of the copies that we have uh, were copied by them, and the quality is incredibly high. With the New Testament, um, one uh, or a couple of scholars say it this way, um, the quality of the New Testament manuscripts, um, oh, I'm sorry, Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what I was saying just a minute ago. Um, since there are so many copies, there are more variants within the copies than there are from the, New Te- or from the Old Testament, but none of those things really relate to matters of doctrine. We're talking about spelling and word order and word usage and things like that. Um, and so the quality is incredibly high with both the Old and the New Testament. Let me get to this last point, the time interval between the original manuscript and, like, the oldest copy that we have. Um, I'll start with the New Testament. The New Testament, the time period is really short. Um, So we're talking maybe 60 to 100 years between the writing of the original copy and the oldest copy that we have in existence today. So we're talking about a very short time period. With the Old Testament, um, previously, the time period was longer Uh, But then in the late 40s, early 50s, there was this incredible discovery of something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? What the Dead Sea Scrolls did was they really changed the game on the Old Testament because uh, in discovering the Dead Sea Scrolls, 1947, um, it unearthed more than 100 copies of books of the Old Testament that have been dated between 200 B.C., 
to A.D. 68. And so the Dead Sea manuscripts are nearly identical to those dating to 500 A.D. or 1300 A.D. So literally they were over a thousand years older than the oldest manuscripts that were in existence before that time. And um, the reason why they have held up so well is because they weren't written on animal skin or parchment. They were, they're, they're like, like kind of stone. I don't know if you've ever seen some of that stuff. So, um, so anyway, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, it really changed the game because we were able to go, hey, look, here are these manuscripts that we have. We're, we're reading them, and now we're comparing them to something that's a thousand years older that we didn't know existed beforehand. And what we're finding is they're almost verbatim. Um, so, are there questions about the reliability of Scripture? Well, well, somebody who's skeptical can certainly look in this and go, well, if everything isn't verbatim, then it must not be the Word of God, and then I don't believe it. But if that's you, then that's because you're looking for a reason to not believe. You don't want to believe in what this is. Um, but any, I think, reasonable person, even if we're not talking about the inspired Word of God, any reasonable person, if we're talking about the work of Plato or Aristotle or somebody like that, would go, hey, look, we've got this copy that says this, and we've got a copy that's a thousand years older that says this, and they are almost verbatim. The only difference between them is just the way that the word is used, or it's spelled, or the order of the words, or something like that. Um, I think most of us would consider that to be a pretty small discrepancy, and that we wouldn't go, so that's all junk. So I, I, I'm not going to read any of that, because there's this very small linguistic discrepancy between them. Um, I think that there's an incredibly strong case that the text that we have today um, is what it was uh, when the authors originally were inspired to write it. Um, and this is, this is where we close. This, I think this is a really cool just chart of what this kind of looks like. Um, examining some of the other works of antiquity from similar time periods and the number of copies, and you see the length of time as well, the number of copies that we actually have of some of these things. So if we start talking about Plato um, and when the work was written post 300 BC, well, we have seven copies of Tetralogies from 1,200 years after it was originally written. And that's all we have. There's no original manuscript there. And then you get to the New Testament, and we have 5,000-plus copies. I mean, it's just like not on the same page with anything else from that time period. Why are there so many copies? Because it's the good news, right? Because it's the good news. And I think this is just another thing that we can look at and go, man, maybe, maybe God like had some kind of role in this. All right, it's 1030. We need to be done. Thank you guys so much. Um, we're, next week, we're going to move forward into, okay, so what do we do with the Bible? How do we read it? How do we study it? And we'll talk about uh, interpretation. We'll get to all of that stuff. So thank you all for being here.